It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, and I'm sick. Again, so I hope y'all will uh, suffer along right along with me in my sore throat. Uh, we have a really exciting episode today. We're gonna got a lot to talk about in the pearls from Super Tuesday to some powerful um, moments on the Oscars last night, the GOP debate. It just there's a lot, and then in the suit we're gonna talk about um, one listener's email in particular and concerns about. Um, how we've been talking about the Bernie movement and the Trump movement, and we're going to sort of follow along with that line of discussion and just um, talk about this really great study or focus group, I guess really is probably more accurate, about um, authoritarianism and Donald Trump. And then in the heels, we're going to talk about things in popular culture or not politics that make us lose our nuance. And I got a long list. I'm not nuanced at all about pop culture, so... 
Well, um, before we jump in, we want to remind you that you can sign up to receive emails from our show and have Pantsuit Politics delivered directly to your inbox. We'd also love for you to check out our new website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Give us a ratings on iTunes so more people can find us. Um, We want to say a very special thank you to two of our listeners who have become supporters of the show, Channing and Kadar. Thank you both so much. And I have to say, Channing, Channing was like early on the pantsuit politics bandwagon. She's the OG. She's the OG. She is. is. And we have always appreciated her so much. And I love interacting with both of these folks on Twitter. So thank you both very much. And um, we hope that the rest of you will check out everything that we have to offer in social media and uh, keep the conversation going. So in the pearls, we're going to start out with this episode will be coming out on Super Tuesday. And there are more delegates and states up for grabs than any other single day in the primary, hence the super part of Super Tuesday. Yeah, and some people refer to parts of this as the SEC primary as well, because a lot of states in the Southeastern Conference are voting. And, you know, here in the South, we like to define ourselves by our sports. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. But um, but it is a really big day. And um, we'll, we'll link up in the show notes um, a great graphic from NPR that shows you the breakdown of delegates by state um, for both the Democrats and the Republicans. But all in all, there are um, over 1,400 delegates at stake and 1,600 if you count the superdelegates. It's really interesting sort of to to look at the breakdown, the amount of delegates at play per, like, depending on the party. You know what I yes. mean? Like, it's really funny. Like, Massachusetts has all these Democratic delegates at play, but there's like 42 Republican delegates at play. It's just, a, it's sort of interesting to scroll through and look at all of them. Yeah, and and I forget about like that American Samoa, you know, has a primary, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I think it's good to just be reminded of we focus so much on Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Um, there is so much going on across the nation, and really, the difference that it makes for the campaigns as they go national versus concentrating their efforts. Um, it's it's just it's kind of fun to think about, and a little bit overwhelming to think about, um, especially because. We sweep up so much of our population in these big dates when we've been worrying about individual counties before now. Oh, speaking of, we should probably discuss the Democratic results in South Carolina. Well, there's not a lot to say, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it was it, a pretty stunning victory. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't I wasn't I don't know if it was stunning. It's sort of like New Hampshire. She was expected to do well there. Uh, I she, think the margin is surprising. Yeah, she she did very well. Uh, Hillary got, I think it was, ended up being like 75% of the vote um, to Bernie's 25%. So, you know, I was reading some Nate Silver, as I do, because he's my boyfriend, um, about sort of what what states Bernie has to win and win by quite a margin. And, you know, come Super Tuesday, I think he's really focused on Massachusetts Obviously, Vermont, but he has to because of the the big margin in South Carolina, he has to really um, win by some margins in a couple of his strong states. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. So we had the South Carolina Democratic primary happen between shows. We also had another Republican debate, which, you know, Sarah, honestly, I just don't want to talk about. I guess we have to, but I don't want to because I thought it was a real nightmare. And they just keep getting worse. Stop talking. I mean, I know your candidates and you have to sort of talk, I don't, but this P. 
peeing the pants and the all these nasty things. They just keep going on and on. Just stop it, you guys. Just stop it. I am very – let me say that CNN is on my list now. <laughs> I've, I've lost my nuance about CNN because, you know, they showed throughout the debate this tight shot – I mean, if you were just casually watching and coming in and out, as I think a lot of people do, um, and aren't glued maybe to the television and computer like I am, all you would think, you would think it's down to Cruz Rubio and Trump and no one yeah. else, because they, they hardly even showed Carson and Kasich standing on the stage. And the moderators just completely lost control. I love the screen grab that someone caught of the closed caption where it just said unintelligible yelling. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of the debate was. I mean, and, and it wasn't about substance. It wasn't about policy. Somebody wrote a bunch of jokes for Marco Rubio to trot out, um, making fun of Trump, I guess, to make him seem less robotic. Although... It's amazing to me, like he uses one of his new lines about if Trump hadn't gotten his inheritance, he would have been selling watches. And what do you know, like 30 seconds later oh. on Marco Rubio's website, you can buy a Trump watch. So I, what he got from trying to be this authentic new prankster, I don't know. I, I just think the whole thing has devolved to the point where it's an embarrassment to the party and to the country. And I really appreciate our listeners on Twitter who are Democrats who who still say, this makes me sad. Like, who yeah. recognize this is not good for the country. Like, you know, I will say that I don't feel like any, you know, I'm a Democrat. I hang out with a lot of Democrats. I don't feel anybody, like, gleeful over this. I really don't hear that. Among, even in, like, sort of closed safe spaces. <laughs> like, any, and no one, I feel like, actually, I hadn't really thought about it until you said that. And it sort of makes me proud that everybody is just disgusted. No one's like, woohoo, we're going to whip them. Everybody's just like, this is gross and scary. And I don't like it. It is not good. And similarly gross and not good is that uh, Chris Christie came out oh. to endorse Donald Trump, as did Jan Brewer, the former governor of Arizona, uh, Paula Page in Maine, who just a few days before had been lamenting the state of the race. Uh, Jeff Sessions. It's it's just uh, I think people are starting to sense some inevitability. And so. The opportunism is is overwhelming to me. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is telling senators, you can run against the Republican nominee for president if it turns out to be Donald Trump. Feel free. You've got my permission. You know, I have to tell you that the New York Times piece about so McConnell's good. strategy was one of the most disheartening things I've, I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a perfect study in why we are where we are, because the fact that the U United States senators in our party are more concerned about preserving their own jobs than ensuring that our party has not just a viable nominee, but like a nominee who isn't an absolute train wreck to our, to the democratic process. And and I'm sorry, here I go losing my nuance about Donald Trump. I'll try to get it back in a few minutes, but I don't understand this. I don't understand the fact that our own senators are saying, well, we'll just take this guy as our candidate, uh, but we'll take care of ourselves. Don't worry. Well, we'll link to this article in the show notes. It's really well reported. It's sort of um, the New York Times piece on kind of the frantic panic happening in the Republican Party about Donald Trump's nominee. And what I thought was really interesting about it is that Donald Trump runs on the establishment wants to tell you what to do, and they've been bossing you around, and they're in control, and there's just this big structure that keeps people from power, except for the whole article is like, 
there was no establishment to keep this from happening. There was really like, there's a really great quote where somebody was like, there is no smoke filled room, or at least I've never seen it. Like there's just, there was no structure or leadership, especially because there's no, you know, all you have is sort of, you haven't had a president since George W. Bush. He's not going to take on that role. And so there's no party leader to sort of leave the charge and say, this is what we're going to do. And so it's just sort of, mayhem as well as far as like a a strategy to really find an alternative for Trump you know and it's really there was another I think it was in this article there was a really good thing about like you know he might have a ceiling at 35 percent but 35 percent out of six candidates is all you need it was really interesting I just thought that that article was really well reported and sort of a fascinating look at the inside of everybody thinks there's this mass conspiracy but it's sort of the absence of that that's the problem (laughs) The only person who I think is trying to be a leader in the Republican Party is Paul Ryan, and he's 100% mm-hmm. focused on policy and good for him. That's where our focus should be. What's he supposed to do with this nightmare after he's yeah. been a speaker for a couple of months? Oh, so true. I really think so. A lot of a lot. And, of, he, and he is shockingly absent from that article, I should say. Well, I think he's trying to stay above the fray here. Yeah. Because because I think he knows he can't fix it. Yeah. And if he tried to fix it at this point, I think that would just I mean, Trump has brilliantly set everything up where anything that a, a an alleged establishment would try to do would just help him. Well, and the thing is, poor Paul Ron is hurting enough cats in the United States, you know, the House of Representatives. He doesn't need to take on more cats to herd. Like he's got enough I think that he is has a big enough challenge when he came in and said, look, this is how it's going to be. And like kind of keeping that group in line. So Godspeed. A lot of listeners have asked very graciously, like Beth, what are you going to do now? Um, (laughs) And, and so I'll, I'll just tell you exactly what I'm going to do. In my view, the only person left to vote for on my side is John Kasich. I fully understand what a long shot he is, especially when media outlets will are, have already written him off and only report about him in the context of saying, hey, we've heard people want you to get out. When are you going to do that? Which I, I think is so insulting and frustrating. But but I'm going to vote for Kasich in the primary. Um, I donated to Kasich's campaign over the weekend. Is, is he my absolute favorite? Nope. But I think his message and his tone what what alternatives are there? He's the only person trying to be an adult. He's yeah. the only person who seems to want to be the president of the whole United States, not just the the reddest portions of it. I think he did an outstanding job in the debate questions that he got on foreign policy. You know, it seemed like this is a person who is approaching this thoughtfully, seriously. And to his credit, he has really stayed out of the ugliness. And I, I hope he continues to do that. Even if it's a losing strategy, I hope he goes forward with it. And I think it's important not to buy into the idea that your vote doesn't matter, that a vote for someone other than Trump or Rubio is a vote wasted. That yeah. That is the media and the pundits telling us what to do in the same way that everybody says they're mad about. So really be mad about it, you know, and go vote yeah. for the person you think is the right person. I was at a party this weekend and a lot of people were like, oh, I just wish it was Rubio. I just wish it was, Ru-. you know, there was a lot of Rubio talk. But I think Rubio has done, even if he manages some brokered convention and some some triumph over Trump has really damaged himself the last month or so. And it's going to come back to haunt him if he does end up being the nominee. All this bravado that he's doing and and the pundits are high-fiving him on television, 
Can you imagine, let's, let's go to what all these people say they want. So Hillary Clinton versus Marco Rubio in the general election. Playing back any of the sound from the past three days, oh. he will look like a child. Yeah, I agree. And in the well, debate, she will look like his mother lecturing him. And yeah. that's where we'll be. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that she, well, and I think that the thing I was going to say about the jokes and just generally with the, with the joking and the candidates, like being a funny politician is a rare thing. Like you're either Ann Richards and you got it or you don't, but stop trying. If you don't like, it's not an easy, people think you just say a funny joke and that's how you're funny. No, 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 no. Like stop it, Marco. Just stop it. You're making it worse for yourself. Well, I wanted to spend a second on um, some very serious news that should have been part of the the uh, GOP debate instead of all this, you know, who can do the best alpha male one-liner. Um, we had two more incidents of gun violence that mm-hmm. you would almost not know happened with the media so coverage. So in Kansas, three people were killed, 14 people were injured um, and during a workplace shooting spree. I read that police believe that a, a restraining order issued by the, the shooter's girlfriend, well, a court on her behalf might have triggered this, which I think is a, a really problematic way to talk about it. I understand what they're getting at. You know, you always want to understand what sets someone off. But I also feel like there's a, a, a line to be walked in respecting the privacy of someone who's already been victimized by this yeah. person. So um, so that happened in Kansas. And then five days earlier in Michigan, an Uber driver went on a shooting spree and killed six people. That one people. was the day of the debate, wasn't it? I feel like it happened that day. I'm I'm not putting the timeline together. It's very close in time for sure. And I mean, it was just the saddest thing. Like he shot someone at Cracker Barrel and it, it it just, you listened to it and thought, boy, you talk about um, real fear in our communities. All of this could have happened anywhere, you know, just completely random. It was super bizarre. It felt, I I mean, maybe I'm, I read a few things about it and it seemed like he would like shoot and then really just deliver somebody, not harm them in the Uber and then go back to shooting. Like that's weird. It's very weird. So he's in custody. Uh, the shooter in Kansas was killed in a shootout with the police. But but those things happened. That's important. We should never get to a point where, where that's not news. Mm-hmm. And it really bothers me and troubles me that we had an entire debate where we, you know, found space to ask about Trump University and not these incidents of gun violence. I know Barack Obama spoke about him. I know the president had a press conference and said sort of that, like, we're just ignoring these things. Like, we're, we're becoming numb to this. This is a problem. Yeah, it's sad that the outgoing leadership has more of a forum to speak about real news than the, you know, people vying for incoming leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking of leadership, what we're learning about the Flint situation just goes from bad to worse. Mm. And we'll do a more thoughtful update on this at some point. But since we had done an episode where we were trying to give Rick Snyder the benefit of the doubt, I think we it's important. That. We revoke it. We take it back because everything that we learn makes it look like people in his very high level administration officials knew about this as early as 2014. I read something where one of the top, it might have been the, the Michigan Attorney General or someone very high up in the Michigan Attorney General's office was like, I'm from Flint. And the idea that you'd be drinking water from that river is terrifying to me. So it's very hard to imagine a world where that many people in the administration knew, but the governor himself did not. Well, and he said something that he was kicking himself. What a horrible way to discuss this. Are you kidding me? That makes me want to kick you. And 
And that's really a dismissive and disrespectful and just unkind way. You kick yourself because you broke like a glass or you kick yourself because you forgot to pick up something from the grocery store. You don't kick yourself because people and children were poisoned. Okay. Mm-mm. Nope. It's- nope. It's just awful. And I do think at this point he should resign. If you can't speak about this more effectively than, oh, shucks, I really hate that we messed up on this water thing, then then you're done. You can't fix it. We're done. Your your benefit of the doubt is revoked, Snyder. You know, here at Pantsuit Politics, we will give and we will take away. (laughs) Yes, that's the thing to say. Um, Also, I want to have just a brief moment on these two, what I'm going to call WTF MSNBC. What is going on over there? So, okay, so you go. You start. I have something to say about this as well. Well, Ted Cruz fired his spokesman Rick Tyler in a in a pretty public way. Although this is another story that I'm not sure anybody who isn't a political junkie cares about. Rick Tyler uh, has been with the Cruz campaign since the beginning. Pretty well respected, you know, veteran operative. There's some video where Marco Rubio sees a guy from the cruise campaign sitting in a hotel lobby with a Bible. Marco Rubio says something about quite a book you got there. And someone interpreted that his next remark as being, it doesn't have any answers, though. Now, what any of this has to do with anything, we'll just put that on a shelf. But it drives me insane that we have this whole controversy over a Bible between these two guys. But whatever. So Rick Tyler tweets out that Marco Rubio said that. It wasn't true. He takes the tweet down. Cruz asks for his resignation because Cruz really doesn't need another day of people talking about the nasty campaign tactics that his folks are using. Now MSNBC has hired Rick Tyler as a political correspondent. Wow. Okay. Um, And then the second thing going on is that Melissa Harris Perry, who, um, if you have not seen her. Is awesome. She's brilliant. She is so smart. She has a PhD. Um, She refers to the people who love her show as Nerdland because they are so into the facts. I mean, she is a fantastic journalist, thinker, and she has been pretty well sidelined in all of the election coverage. Her show has just not been on because MSNBC has been having these poor reporters sit for hours, like outside of casinos in Las Vegas, and just all day talk to voters and recite the same things from the trail over and over again. And no one's communicated with her about any of it. And they got complaints that her show wasn't on. And so they asked her to do um, some reporting from the trail. And she was like, no, you're not going to treat me like crap and expect me to just show up because you're getting complaints about me. And so they fired her. Uh, mm. And she is such a unique, wonderful, nuanced girl is keeping the nuanced real. I just mm, not happy. Not happy. It does not look good for MSNBC, that's for sure. No. Well, and this is my additional MSNBC. We might be, I'm, I'm, we might be done. I'm not sure if we were ever on me and MSNBC, except for Rachel Maddow. But um, a while back, like I guess a month ago, they reported this art, this big piece about how Bernie had all this infrastructure in South Carolina and he had 250 staff. And he had 15 offices, and Hillary just had four offices, and she only had 14 staff. And he just had all this infrastructure, and it was going to be over for her, and this was going to change everything. Like, you know, very – I mean, I was started. I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? Why don't they have any infrastructure in South Carolina? What's she doing? And so I 
um, messaged one of my friends um, who's like very pro Hillary and sort of talks me down from time to time. And he was like, no, this MSNBC league does this all the time. They are so anti-Hillary in like a very obvious way. And so this, this, I mean, and Tyler had like screen grabs of the, this ridiculous story, which now looks even more ridiculous after the results of South Carolina. Like, no one's saying you can't report and like, that's fine. But these obvious, very sort of obviously biased, you know, from the ground situations. And he says that there's, Tyler had a sort of a long litany of stories they've done in the past that were pretty openly anti-Hillary. It was, it was interesting. I don't know what's going on there. I think the network is trying to redefine itself in some ways because they are doing fewer shows, right? And Mm. more just coverage, but I don't, I don't know who that's for, really, or or what's going on. So, anyway, MSNBC, get it together. Seriously. Before we move on to the suit, we want to talk about really quick at the Oscars. There, was, there were a couple sort of political moments. First of all, the Best Picture uh, winner was Spotlight, which I've talked about before, um, which is the most amazing film. More journalistic than political, but also just really, really good and smart and well done. It's about the Boston Globe and their reporting um, of the Catholic sexual abuse scandal. Highly recommend it. So glad it won. Of course, Leo got his Oscar and, you know, his speech was very well done. I'm very happy for him. I still will not be seeing The Revenant. My friend accused me of being less than nuanced when it came to The Revenant. <laughs> but I just, I don't, I can't do the three hours in the in the cold with the woods and the, mm, no. So happy for Leo. Uh, Brie Larson won for Room, which was really great. There was a lot of very political moments on the show. People taking their sort of time at the mic. Leo talked about global warming, which, and to his credit, he's been pretty consistent on for a decade or more. Um, sort of uh, uh, some of the Mad Max. Mad Max won a bunch of technical awards, and they a t- couple of them took the moment to say, like, this is supposed to be science fiction, but if we keep the way we are abusing the planet and electing these authoritarian crazy people maybe mad max won't be fiction um lots of lots of sort of political messages and then there was a really really wonderful powerful performance by lady gaga joe biden came and introduced her and everybody there was a lot of clapping a lot of standing up everybody loves joe biden especially in hollywood and um he introduced her for hit their um it's on us initiative which is a pledge to end or to try to end obviously sexual abuse um, the pledge is to recognize that non-consensual sex is sexual assault, to identify situations in which sexual assault may occur, to intervene in situations where consent has not or cannot be given, and to create an environment in which sexual assault is unacceptable and survivors are supportive. And she did this amazing performance, and then um, all these survivors sort of walked up and had um, phrases written on their arms. It was really powerful. I was I cried a little bit. It was a really great, great moment and a, a very relevant and sort of emotionally authentic moment which can be rare in a situation like the oscar so i highly recommend finding it online well talking about the uh, warmth for biden in the room i saw a great tweet and i can't remember who said this but it was after the big short uh one for the best adapted screenplay um and one of the the winners of that award made a comment about we have to stop letting wall street fund candidates oh, yeah. and someone tweeted you know um lamenting the state of big money in politics to a room full of obama donors <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and also we should say oh my gosh I can't forgot we all um overlooked this but chris rock did what i i hoped he did and he did it very well which was just come out and talk 
openly, honestly, hilariously about the Oscar so white and the um, racial discrimination in the Academy, the fact that there were no black voters. The only, my only criticism is it became this very like, there's no black people, you know, black people, black people, black people. And there was sort of like this missing of like, it's not just, that's not the, it's not like the room is filled with Asians and, you know, like there's discrimination across a very broad spectrum of color in the Academy. And it sort of became this binary setup, but they, I mean, they did skits on, he did not let it go. It was the whole way through. Like, um, he ta- talked about this really interesting moment he had with Obama where he was like, these are the nicest people. These are a room bunch of, uh, full of big liberal, nice people. And they don't hire black people like smile. Like he was like in a photo, photo op with president Obama sort of said that to him and then moved on, you know, this kind of idea of like, if we can't, can't convince these people not to racially discriminate, but I mean, he was, he was pretty ruthless and he just went for it the whole night long. I think he did a good job. I think that. Somebody was like, oh, you don't think they were so upset they hired Chris Rock? I'm like, well, if they are, then they're tone deaf because thank God they hired Chris Rock. I would have, you know, it would have been awful to have a white person hosting the Oscars and trying to to say it's anything authentic or sort of, I mean, I think there are comedians smart enough to do it, but I think it was much better that it was Chris Rock out there just sort of unapologetically saying, this is my experience. This is our experience. This is a problem. Like, I thought he did a really great job. I thought it was the parts that I saw. I mean, I fell asleep. And as you know, I'm just I'm not into this. I have a hard time naming something I care less about than this. But um, what I saw, I thought was really smart. Mm -hmm. I feel um, I don't feel good about critiquing it one way or the other, you know, because I think like I don't if I were a person who was being left behind in this process, I don't know what this does for me. Um, mm-hmm. I was following some um, accounts of of some really smart and strong black women, including Tracy Clayton of another round who we went to college with. And um, and I was mo- mostly interested in how they were reacting because I, I feel like it gets it, kind of like formation. Like, who cares yeah. what I think? I mean, Hard. I think it's brilliant, but it's it's not for me. So I was trying to kind of keep that approach about it. But I, all in all, I still look at this whole thing and think, what a bunch of privileged people congratulating themselves on. You know, um, I think Glennon from the Monastery tweeted something like, this is all fine, but I'm ready to see the Oscars for teachers and social workers and police officers and yeah. <laughs> people who have actually difficult jobs. So, well, I know. don't know. I think I think the Revenant did look difficult. Well, it did I'll, look I'll give difficult. them that. Painful, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I say, I'll say this. I think that with regards to sort of this, the um, Oscar so white and in a related to formation, let me say on the record, I still want, I would like more culture that is not quote unquote for me. Formation is not for me and I love it. And I bought tickets to Beyonce's concert. And um, I just think that 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 is the role of sort of, if there is a role for white people in this discussion, it's just, yes, more of that, please. I'm not just, just so there's no confusion. It's fantastic. It's awesome. More of that. Thank you. I agree. And I I don't mean by saying it's not for me to say I don't appreciate it. I absolutely do. And I do want to see more of it. I just don't Mm -hmm. I don't want to sit back and offer some uh, detailed critique about it because that's not my role here. No. Agreed. So moving on into the suit, we're going to talk about um, Bernie and Trump and authoritarianism, which is sort of a mouthful, but we'll keep we'll keep at it.
Well, we got this great message from our listener, Nikki, who um, who had a lot of really positive things to say about what we're doing here. But but she did go back to, I feel like um, you guys are pretty dismissive of, of Bernie and Trump in a way that dismisses the people who support them, which is certainly not our intention. So she had four issues that she wanted to hear more about from us. And I think this is a good outline for our discussion. So I'm just going to kind of run down those issues, Sarah, and then we'll dive into them. The first is superdelegates. So Nikki writes, a lot of people are concerned that even if Bernie or Trump win the popular vote, they won't take their respective conventions. What does it mean that private entities have the ability to choose our candidates for us, even if it means ignoring what the people want? Um, second, the lock-in Congress. So we've we've said with both of these guys that they're not going to be able to do what they're promising. And Nikki says very intelligently, the fact that a broken system won't let our candidates do work isn't exactly a consolation. Um, what does it mean for the average American that the system doesn't seem designed to care about what the voters want? Uh, the third issue is the two-party system and the establishment. What does it mean when each election we only really have two choices? And what do you think about the idea that establishment candidates have not been contested by outsiders since we've had this Bush-Clinton, Bush-Clinton, Bush-Clinton thing happening? And then lastly, the popularity contest. One of the painful parts of thinking about Hillary Clinton is that I really think she has the strongest skills. She would probably be the best president, but the election is a popularity contest. What does it mean that the elements that make a candidate succeed in the election primary don't actually make a good president? And oh, I have so many feelings about all of these things. So why don't we start with superdelegates, which are very different you know, the, the Democratic Party is much more well positioned than the Republican Party to deal with something like a Trump phenomenon because they have all of these superdelegates who are not bound to the popular vote. My understanding of how it works on the Republican side is that all of the, the GOP delegates are committed on the first ballot. But if after the first ballot, the way the popular broke direct, the, the way the popular vote directed those delegates to vote does not produce someone with enough delegates to win under the convention rules, then on successive ballots, they're free to change. Well, and my question is, I mean, didn't the Republican Party just change a lot of this? I wonder what it was before. Well, they did change a lot of this to deal with, uh, I think, to deal with Ron Paul and I think that some of those changes will come back to bite them. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds on that because th there's a lot of detail that I would get wrong if I started guessing at it. Um, but, but I also understand that the first act in every Republican convention is to set the rules for that convention. Putting all that aside, what I would say directly to Nikki's point is I don't think either party, when push comes to shove, will ignore what the people want. Yeah, that's my that's my first thing with superdelegates is I first I, I don't think that I think they're more of a psychological sort of influence and factor which I am not opposed to watching what's happening with Donald Trump. Just going to say that right now. And but I and I think when push comes to shove, they wouldn't I mean, we saw them shift. She had all these superdelegates in 2008. And then they were like, no, everybody wants Obama. And they moved over to Obama. So I don't really think that that is, it's this, you know, sort of tool of the establishment. I think it's more of this sort of uh, steady influence, but I think they can shift. And I don't think the steady influence is bad. I've, I've said this before. I don't think that 
the idea that people who work within the party system work hard within the party system shouldn't play a little bit bigger role. I just don't have a huge problem with that. If that makes me undemocratic, uh, maybe I'll need to reevaluate. But I just I'm not that I'm not hugely opposed because we saw in 2008 that they don't they're not just going to muscle out the the will of the voters really. I mean, if the if it seems to shift, if the tide changes, they go with it. I am hugely opposed to it, but I don't think that there is a real danger because of because exactly what you said, what we saw in 2008. And I think that if Bernie Sanders started to win the popular vote, like if he came out on Super Tuesday and swept a lot of these states, I think the superdelegates would follow. I really yeah. do. And don't on you Re- wish you had some superdelegates? Come on. You don't wish you had a little bit of superdelegates right now? On the Republican side? What I think would be happening if the Republican Party had superdelegates is exactly what's happening with the the Republican Party pundits who've always been so influential. I think the popular vote would say, forget you. I don't care. I think what we're seeing is a total rebellion of anyone who has purported to have influence on the process for the past 10 years or so. So I think on the Republican side, if we had superdelegates, the news cycle would be flooded with how the superdelegates are going to save the Republican Party and the voters would rebel against that. I don't think it would help. Yeah. Well, and also before we move on to the Congress point, I wanted to say kind of in her, the the dismissive part, when I say with regards to Bernie and sort of his movement, that it's generational. That's not dismissive. That's just descriptive for me. Like it's sort of, it's sort of the opposite. When my point I was making about like, I feel like there's a lot of young people and that we all do this more like, welcome to the club. This is what I did with Howard Dean. And it didn't turn out the way I wanted to, but I stuck with it. So I believe in you and I want you to be a part of the process. And I hope you won't become discouraged because we've all been there. So it wasn't just like, ugh, young people. God, I hope I'm not like that. I'm only 34. So, you know, it's not really, it's more just, me trying to put a framework that helps me understand it and not, and not, it's really not meant to be dismissive. And I apologize if it is, it's more just, I think this is what happened. I've totally been there. Um, I think we all get to the point where we become sort of politically more involved and aware in our twenties. And we sort of see what's going on. We're like, we don't like this. And I think, I think millennials are even more predisposed to sort of push against that. Although I don't know. I think the night, you know, the baby boomers in the sixties were pretty, Let's up in things, but it's really not meant to be dismissive. On the Trump side, it's not, it's clearly not generational. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's crossing every demographic. I think what it is, and we'll talk about this authoritarianism study in a minute. I think it's a reaction to exactly what we talked about with the Mitch McConnell piece over the weekend, just this leadership that seems to only be invested in itself, in its own survival. And it looks like Trump is not beholden to anyone, and it looks like he's a leader. You can hate everything coming out of his mouth, but you still feel like, there's a lot of strength behind it. There's a ton of confidence. The circus last night was called the confidence game. And it talked mm. about how he just projects this confidence. And uh, they showed a moment of of his son, Donald Jr., speaking to voters in Nevada. And Mark McKinnon said, you know, Trump got an extra chromosome in terms of confidence. Trump Jr. got it, too. And, yeah. and he did. I mean, he's just so commanding. And those types of personalities we don't see a lot 
in Capitol Hill. It's this mealy-mouthed, you know, working through the system. And and I have to say, I voted for Mitch McConnell every time he's been on the ballot since I have been old enough to vote. I am sickened by where he is today. And and I know that people who've hated Mitch McConnell for a long time will say, well, none of this is new. It's just his real character. Fine, fine. <laughs> but it is so disgusting to me to see his comments on the Supreme Court, to see where he is with respect to Trump. So I, I feel like Trump, Trump's movement is not at all a generational movement. It's a moment in time movement. And it's just a rejection of what our politics have become. Well, and I think what's, to me, with regards to sort of the Trump movement, and I really, from my perspective as someone from the other party, really feel like Mitch McConnell and Karl Rove, well, not really. I mean, I I think there's a lot. I think they sort of laid the groundwork and the foundation and Newt Gingrich and this sort of so these social issues, they laid the groundwork for the Tea Party and it just and then they kept watering it because it served their political purposes and they kept growing it and kept feeding it until, you know, it didn't always turn out great for them. And now I, I don't know, I just feel like some of that this this the Tea Party and the we'll just look the other way as a huge part of that is the birther movement and we'll just sort of because it serves our political purposes. And now that it's happening against them within their own party, they're just like, oh, no, what, what, what have we created? Although I think that I, I will say that um, the Rolling Stone article that you posted on Twitter, although I don't really agree that the I don't agree that the press has been this sort of foil to Trump at all. I think the media has been feeding you know, they like, like I said last time, I think that they treat him like a gift from heaven because he's such a great, he's such great content and such great uh, ratings juggernaut. But I do thought it was, I thought it was interesting that, you know, he talked, the author talked about how sometimes Trump talks about these things that nobody else talks about, like the insurance monopoly. And, you know, he's saying some things that even I'm like, y- yeah, you know, I, and the the unfortunate part is that they're dressed up in somebody who I think is n- does not have the disposition to be leader of the free world, at if I'm being super generous, but I don't think it's just, you know, just feeding this sort of ugly part of people's of this political movement that I find really disheartening. I think that's part of it, and I think that foundation he's been able to take advantage of that. But I do also think that he says things that appeal because he's so unapologetic because he's so authentic because he's just like, well, we all know this is rigged and this is, you know, crap and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I don't know. I think that appeals to people and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. No, if you had someone who seemed at all humble enough to learn some things Mm -hmm. and if you had someone who did have time to be politically correct now and then and understood the importance of speaking with respect. There's a lot in Trump's candidacy that would be good for this country. You know, I I work with someone who I really respect. This guy is super smart. And he saw us post the Vox authoritarianism piece that we keep alluding to. Before I even had a chance to read it, you had to read it. You had posted it, Sarah. He sent me an email saying, I'm not an authoritarian. I, I totally reject that characterization. He said, you know, I'm a conservative with a little bit of socialism mixed in. I want things to be fair. I don't mind contributing some to make sure that that most people in America are taken care of. The reason that I support Trump 
is because I just want four years. I want one term of somebody going in and trying this a new way because the way that it's working now is ridiculous. It's a joke. And I'm willing to take a gamble on four years of disruption, even if everything that he does and says doesn't feel good. And you know what? If if our president were a domestic president only, I might be able to get myself there. I would say I might be able to get myself there if we could put the like what the issues that you were just referring to sort of this. I'm not going to completely separate myself from people who are racist. You know, <laughs> there are still things that he says that trouble me deeply. Mm hmm. But I can get my arms around feeling like, oh, nobody's perfect, even if some of this is really distasteful, even if he doesn't really know everything. Let's experiment. Let's try it. What I cannot get myself to is putting that <laughs> that experiment in a seat that controls our response to international incidents, mm. that decides what we do with our drones that can have a grudge match with other foreign leaders. You know, I, I just can't, I can't find it in me to, to try something new, completely new when there are serious and consequences that will last decades if that doesn't go well. And I don't see Donald Trump being someone who I can entrust to decide if we are going to, bomb a city. I just can't do that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion. 
in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Well, and here's the thing, and this sort of goes to the the idea about the two-party system and the establishment. People have this problem with this. Um... Well, first of all, I, I take issue with the Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton, because she lost last time and, to a pretty big outsider who was a two-term president. So I don't think it's been this, this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I, I am an in-the-system kind of girl. I just am. I think that our founding fathers, if we want to go to their original intent, which people like to bring up with Scalia, I think their intent was to have a system that took three steps forwards and two steps back and that didn't change in this revolutionary way and that compromised and nobody got what they wanted and we didn't get to experiment and change things in this big dramatic way. I do not think that is the that was the idea behind American democracy. In fact, I think it is the best part of American democracy that we don't get to just scrap it and go back to the drawing board we have to work with the system we have and it is slow you know i i I think i might have said this before on this podcast i can't remember if i have but president obama was on mark maron's wtf podcast and mark maron was talking about liberals who sort of have this big issue with you haven't done enough you haven't made enough change you haven't gone far enough which sort of was always my argument about barack obama that he was a pragmatist and that his speeches were filled with hope and change but i really didn't think he was gonna you know do something hugely you know, scrap it and start over. And he said, like, when you're still steering an ocean liner, you can't turn 180 degrees to the left. You'll tip the ship over. Like, you have to go just a little bit, and then 20, 10, 20, 30 years will be in a new place. But you can't – it's too big. We're too big. There's too many – too much at stake. It's – this isn't an experiment. This is people's lives. This is our country. This is our system. And I'm not saying the system can be improved upon, but it is the one we have. And I think it's worked. It's working. It doesn't work great. It's failed huge segments of our population. But I just, the idea that we just start over is very upsetting to me. It's not something that appeals to me at all. Um, I like tiny little steps forward. I think that's the best way you sort of, take a few and see how this affects everybody and that doesn't work. So, okay, let's shift this. And I just, the idea that we're just gonna, you know, scrap and start over and experiment is deeply upsetting to me and not something I want. And I think that there's too much at stake and, uh, no, I'm opposed. (laughs) It's hard for me to take issue with much of that because I'm a conservative. I, I will say one thing that I have been watching with interest lately is the discussion about term limits on the Supreme Court. That's something that I oppose. I think that there is such a learning curve to mm. leadership. There is a huge learning curve in anything connected to the law. I know we have a lot of law students who listen to our show, and I think um, law students can probably appreciate this. Once you get into practice, you'll see it even more that you you kind of approach each thing like, I don't know anything. You know, there's just so much to get your arms around. And so uh, I I don't have any interest 
in limiting the institutional knowledge that can fill our Supreme Court. And that's why I, as much as it resonates with me to have a business experience outside the beltway coming into politics, I'd like those people to start elsewhere. I'd like them to be representatives and then governors, you know, maybe senators. I I don't think senators tend to make the best presidents. I I Mm. like executive experience, but that's why, because I think you need executive experience. Mm -hmm. And I understand drawing parallels between running the kinds of enterprises that a Donald Trump or a Carly Fiorina has run um, and taking those skills to the presidency. But the presidency is an awfully big job. And I it calls for a level of judgment that I don't see when I see Donald Trump throwing a water bottle over the stage to make fun of Marco Rubio. I think his talent is the popularity contest, which is mm. Nikki's next point. Um, and, and so what I'll say on the two party system, I think we are dying right now for another party. Or maybe a scenario where the parties remain as they are. Uh, but there are shifts in sort of the rules around those parties and shifts in what it takes to get on a ballot and start a movement. You know, I, I think the parties are delusional if they think they're still incredibly important in this era. I read something that Reince Priebus, um, apparently he said in some meetings lately that he thinks the Republican Party can absolutely work with Donald Trump because he'll need the party apparatus in the general election. He'll need all the voter data that the party has. He'll need the party's resources. I think that is just white hot garbage. I do. I think that (laughs) Donald Trump, just like he said all weekend, 14 million people pay attention to him on social media. He can do a commercial on Instagram and he'll win the news cycle with it. He doesn't have to pay for anything. I don't think he needs anything the Republican Party has to offer. And so I don't know what the answer is to, to Nikki's question, but I will say that I think technology is enabling greater democracy and that the, the people and, and in some ways the voter market is speaking. Now, we not, might not like what it has to say on the Trump side of things, although a lot of people do. I mean, look, I'm, I'm saying this like we're all sitting here agreeing that Donald Trump isn't a good idea. That's clearly not where America is, or at least uh, the people who are voting in the states yes, right now. Say. You know, Some and we'll, people. <laughs> and we'll see in the general election. I mean, Sarah, some very smart people um, have theories that a Trump-Clinton general election would be a tight one and that no one knows what would happen in that. So so I don't accept the idea that really only 30% of Republican primary voters are behind Donald Trump. I think it's much bigger than that. Well, and here's what I want you to speak to, maybe not now, but later. I, I was with, talking to somebody and they said, you know, I was with, I'm terrified by him. I was with a group of people, people I respect, and they were like, oh no, I would support Donald Trump. And, and then... She went on to say, but I couldn't vote for Hillary. And my husband is, you know, a diehard Republican. And so he's not going to vote Democrat. He's going to vote Trump. And the part of me that really bugs me about Donald Trump with regards to this sort of I have to vote Republican idea is he's not a Republican. He's not in any way you would just be people who want a change. And like you're so into the two party system that you could never check the box of somebody with a D next to their name, even if that's your alternative. Like he doesn't represent conservative ideas. Like he's just taking it. I mean, he could have, if, if I think there, if there had been a vacuum in a similar situation, he could have absolutely run as a Democrat. Cause he's done. I mean, he plays both sides and has his entire career. 
So that that idea that like, well, I have to check the R box. Like, I think that's the problem. Like, stop being so polarized. Like, let's just look at the people next to us. Like, I do think as much as I do, you know, I I like our system and I don't want to scrap it and start over. We have some problems. We have the idea that, you know, there's no compromise and sort of the Mitch McConnell, my only priority is to take, to get rid of, you know, to run against Barack Obama and not govern. Like, there is a problem. And I think if it continues down this road, it's just going to get worse and worse. And I think that's what's, what people are reacting to. It's just uncompromising polarization. Like, it's just so bad and... But we all have to decide to be not be like that on an individual level first. Like, if it's Donald Trump versus Olympia Snow, I know I always use Olympia Snow. That's easy. I should take in a harder a harder group. I mean, John Kasich, defunded Planned Parenthood. That is something very close to my heart. But if it's Donald Trump versus John Kasich, I'm voting for John Kasich. It's not even a question. I don't know. I just, just I, I wish we could all just individually sort of step back from that a little bit. Because that's how it's going to have to start. We're going to have to hold our political officials accountable and say, I'll vote for the, I'm, you know, I'm not, I will vote for a Republican candidate before I allow you to govern in such a polarized way. I don't think that the people who say, I cannot vote for Hillary Clinton are reacting to the D beside her name as much as they're reacting to Hillary Clinton. Well, and I mean, she said it like her husband's a Republican. He's never going to vote for anybody but a Republican. Basically, it was her sort of thing. Well, I think there are people in that category. And, and, and to that, I completely agree that Donald Trump could have, could have just as easily run as a Democrat and said all the same things. I, I do not think he represents conservative principles in any way. Um, I think that, that a lot of people I talk to who are Republicans who um, are saying I could never vote for Donald Trump are also saying I could not vote for Hillary Clinton because I have so many questions about Hillary Clinton's ethics. And, and that's a, that's another show. Um, but I think that I, I, I think there is that polarization that that's the leadership vacuum I'm talking about, right? There, there are people who are in positions to lead who, who have such a mindset of scarcity that they aren't there to govern, right? They're they're in office to start running for their next term in office. And it feels like they, it feels to me, Mitch McConnell is my senator. He represents me. And when he talks, I feel like he only represents people in our state who are Republicans, who voted for him. I feel like every time he talks, he says, all I hear is, I'm only representing the people that voted for me. And I feel a little bit like that with Matt Bevan and other people. Like, I just, can you just acknowledge that you represent people, you represent Democrats? Can you just, can you just acknowledge that, please? <laughs> like, well, it's just really frustrating. Say, I also want to say, I don't know that either of them, I don't know what they mean by representing Republicans at this point. I mean, mm. so, and, and at the risk of going to Kentucky politics, I'm very frustrated with Governor Bevan right now because I expected from him a pro-business agenda, an agenda that tries to deal with the Kentucky fiscal crisis and tries to create more opportunity for for business to thrive in Kentucky so that more people can be employed, right? That's that's where we need to go. More people can be meaningfully employed with, with re- rewarding jobs that have some future potential. What I've seen is um, slashing away, like with a machete, 
at early childhood education in Kentucky. I don't know how you're pro-business and anti-education. I don't. Mm. Who's going to be your workforce eventually? Um, the, this legislation that prevents ever putting a toll in place to deal. This is very personal for me. There's a bridge between northern Kentucky and Cincinnati that I have driven on every working day for almost 10 years. And for almost 10 years, I have wondered, am I going to die on this bridge? Because it is in such bad shape. And it is such a cluster trying to get any constituencies together to solve the problem of this bridge. It's a bridge. We should, if we can't solve this problem, what are we doing? But, but now the Kentucky legislature um, is, is looking at preventing, like saying never ever can there be a toll on this bridge. I don't understand how that's Republican Mm. to me. I drive on that bridge every day. It's better for me to pay for it than for federal funds where people all over the United States are paying for my bridge. That's not Republican. That's not conservative. You know, so I don't know who they're speaking to. And I apologize for the long detour there. But but it is a way for me to frame the fact that I don't feel represented either. All I see are people who are working toward the popularity contest that Nikki refers to, that it's branding. It's that I'm against spending money on anything. I'm against any taxes ever for any reason. I only care about getting reelected. And that's where I think we've lost our way and why a Donald Trump, of course, is is endearing the populace to him because he's not about that. And that's where I think I, I hate his political correctness business. I think what people like about that is the idea that that's code for him of just, I'm being honest with you. I'm saying what I think. And I understand why people like that. Absolutely. So the Vox article that we were going to talk about says that, um, basically the, the best indicator, not, it wasn't as far as support for Donald Trump was not gender, education, age, ideology, party identification, income, or race. They had no statistical bearing on whether someone supported Donald Trump. Neither um, did evangelical evangelicalism. I'm struggling there. And that, to me, is, I sure hope not, because if you're, <laughs> if you are dedicated to an evangelical ideology and you in some way, shape, or form thinks Don, think Donald Trump represents that, I I got a bridge I got to sell you because y'all know. So anyway, but what did was authoritarianism. And they mean America's inclination to authoritarian behavior. When political scientists use the term authoritarianism, we are not talking about dictatorships, but about worldview. People who score high on the authoritarian scale value conformity and order, protect social norms, and are wary of outsiders. And when authoritarians feel threatened, they support aggressive leaders and policies. And I found this so informative, so really getting to the meat of what is happening with Donald Trump. You know, I've said this before. Our society is having real and challenging conversations about race, about transgendered people, about queer people, about how we treat those people. I think that there are real there's real pushback and important discussions about having about gender and sex and what does that mean? And it's things are changing and I'm not trying to deny that. And I know that that is scary and makes people uncomfortable and reading that study. I thought that is what he is appealing to. It's not politically correct when people, what I hear when I, people say, 
I'm so tired of being politically correct. What I hear is I have to consider all these different viewpoints and the feelings of people who I've never had to consider before. And it's really hard to constantly, it's hard for me and I support all these things to like, to think, Oh, did I say that right? Or what about this group? Or what about this group? It's really hard and it's uncomfortable. And I think we're having really, really big conversations about that right now in our society and the discomfort. And I just, Oh, I just want to go back to where, you know, I could say what I wanted and we knew who was in charge and we knew what marriage meant and we knew what sex meant and we knew what gender meant. And that, I think that that is really sort of bubbling beneath all that. I think there are elements of that to be sure. And I think that this issue for me does not explain the Trump phenomenon, but it sort of helps me crystallize my thoughts about the differences between the Sanders and the Trump movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump speak to the the leadership vacuum and the idea that everyone's bought and paid for and no one's telling me what they really believe. And, you know, my husband, who is who's definitely a Republican, uh, said to me last night, you know, if I'm just thinking who in this race has the most integrity, who do I believe when he talks? It's Bernie Sanders. I don't Mm -hmm. doubt for a second that Bernie means what he's saying. And so I understand the appeal in that way. And I think that people believe that about Donald Trump, too. Now, I'm a little bit more cynical about Donald Trump. I think he's a great salesperson. Um, But he says it in a way that you think, well, he must mean that. And so, and you know, maybe he does. I don't know what's in someone's head. So, so you have the two of them. And this is why I, I struggle to talk about them without Um, lumping their supporters together. I think that a very critical distinction um, between the groups of people who share this desire for authenticity and leadership and a more populist movement, the rejection of the super PACs and the donor class, is that the Trump people do uh, desire this this order, right? This protection yeah. of what has been. I mean, that's the again in Make America Great Again, right? I mean, yeah. that was a very genius way to signal to people that I thought the 1950s were awesome and didn't you too? And shouldn't we try to get ourselves back there? And I think that on the Sanders side, that is not an authoritarian group of people. It's quite the opposite, right? They're They're ready to make huge sweeping change in what fairness means in the United States. Yeah. Well, and you know, the make America great again, let's go back to the fifties. Well, it was great for a certain group. It wasn't great for everybody. Yeah. But that group is the group he's talking to. Exactly. That's his group. And I feel like with Bernie, because it's, you know, it's this, it's this very young group who's grown up with all these things shifting and are like, we're rethinking everything. So let's rethink this too. And let me just say, on the record, definitively, I love that instinct. I love it. And, mo- and you know, and really, even though I'm this, like, cheerleader for the, the political system, like, I really think that there is so much room in politics to rethink and to um, sort of reevaluate. I, I guess my thing is I think it has to start at the grassroots level. And I, I know Bernie has a lot of grassroots support, but I think change – um, sort of rethinking this, you know, the very basis of how we run for office. It has to start with all these awesome people supporting Bernie running for office. Like, get down there on the very, like, the. you have to sell it on an individual level. You have to sell it at this very base level of, hey, this isn't working, so let's change it 
in our city or this isn't working on our school board. So let's change it this way and sort of it has to work up because I think when we when it when it becomes too much too fast is why people the sort of make America great crowd doubles down and says, oh, no, like I'm digging my heels in. I want authority. I want an authority who's going to put the brakes on all this change. That's what it feels like to me. It's like Bernie is an accelerator and Donald is a brake. You know what I mean? Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, that's how I would answer 
Nikki's questions on both the lock in Congress and the popularity contest. I think the answer is absolutely more involvement. The way that you mm-hmm. overcome the popularity contest effect in presidential races is to pay attention. This breaks my heart about Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush, I think, is the person in the Republican field who would have made the best president, but he was not the best candidate in this environment. He did not do well in the popularity contest. We've we got to be better than that. We've got to pay more attention than that. You know, and then I, I also think that in addition to more people running for office, we need a new generation of political operatives because the people running these campaigns steer our candidates down a certain road, right? You as as a candidate, you cannot be A to Z, especially as you start seeking higher offices. I think we have to have a new group of people behind the scenes to say, now, wait a second, we're not going to run this ad. We're not even going to make this ad. You know, <laughs> it's beneath us. Well, um, and I will say, and we've had this discussion sort of offline, which is I do think that the Democratic Party is benefiting from taking on a new generation of political leaders under the, like, sort of having this new wave come up with Obama, people who were ready to scrap the playbook, start over, rethink everything. What if we did this? What You know, David Plouffe was a political genius, is a political genius. And I think you see that. I think you see more of that on the Democratic side because we've had this Obama was, for all intents and purposes, an outsider who kind of came in and with this new wave of political operatives who were like, let's rethink this. I mean, these people are now working for Hillary Clinton, a lot of them. So so here's where I part ways a little bit with that line of thinking. That That's absolutely true. They were a new generation. I think we need a new generation after them because what they did is say, I'm tired of Republicans being better at this than we are. Right. Yeah. I am tired of Republicans being a, a better machine, a better communications um echo chamber, right? Like, it's sort of like, no, we're going to be as good at this as the Karl Robes are. And they did that. And they did it in a new way using new technology. And so they not only caught up, but they got better. So I think that's what happened on the Democratic side with the David Plouffe's and the Axelrods, who I have a lot of respect for. I mean, good for them. They did what they needed to do. Now I think we need to reset and say, let's have people behind these campaigns who are also willing to lose. You know, because once everybody says, we're going to run the best candidates that we have, we're going to put out the best ideas we have. And if those don't work, okay, we're going to run hard. We're going to do everything that we need to do, but we're not going to run at no cost. That's what's happening with Marco Rubio right now. They're running Mm -hmm. at no cost. That's what Chris Christie has just done. He said, there's no price for my ambition. We have to reset from there. And I would love to see more people like Mark McKinnon, who are bipartisan operatives, who say, I am going to put my talent and skill behind the person whose ideas and whose judgment I value, period. Well, I will say that I think that, the you know, what happened with Obama's campaign was more – because what I feel like with Karl Rove is he – his was more – well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I guess, you know, from the from the bias of where I sit, um, Karl Rove sold sort of a, a different kind of message. And I, I really don't. And I think that his sort of his ground game was um, a more, I don't want to say skeptical or pessimistic, but just more, more of a, um, I'm going to lay the foundation in the state parties and I'm going to make it impossible for any sort of other other type of candidate to come in 
um, and lock out the other party. And it was it's very sort of polarized. And I don't feel that from the Obama campaign. I don't feel this. We're going to make it so Republicans can't win again for 25 years. Like, that's just not that's not how I feel. That's never how I've never felt like that's the message. Whereas I always felt like the message of Karl Rove and this sort of movement Newt Gingrich was, we're just going to lock them out. We're not going to let them have to say any, the Democrats are done. We don't want to have to hear anything they say. We're going to make them lose on the state level and the local level. And we're just going to lock out that point of view altogether. And it always really bothered me. I think that is um, a lot to do with your perspective and bias. <laughs> and, and, and also, I think that's another episode. And we really do need to move on. I'm looking at the time. So I hope that we have... Um, given some some thought to the issues that Nikki raised, because I think they're really important issues. And, and I do think both of us, even even though we have very different um, biases coming into this, I think both of us would say the conclusion is more involvement. Everyone yeah. has to take more responsibility. We cannot call it the system as though it's an other from us. We have to decide that it is our system and that we are part of it and we have to take it back in ways that are responsible and that honor what that system is supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. So next up in the heels, we're going to talk about non-political things that make us lose our nuance. Long list of non-political things that make me lose my nuance, Sarah. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty unapologetically non-nuanced when it comes to yeah, yeah, and a lot of things. Just a lot of things. You, well, what are you? What are your big ones? I can tell you mine. You go first. I have two things right now where where I have absolutely no nuance for for these two subjects. The first one is um, baby food. I have no nuance <laughs> about baby food whatsoever. I think it is gross and. Ugh. I, I, I don't understand why we have allowed ourselves to believe that the human race couldn't survive before food processors. Like, I just yeah. don't understand, like, mashing everything up for your child. So, like, I made for Ellen, who is eight months old yesterday, some eggplant risotto, and she loved it. So, like, I just – I look at baby food. I'm like, why? Why, why, why? So, baby food, I have no nuance about. And let um, me tell you, my babies had no nuance for baby – like, Griffin sort of went with it. And I, because I had a lot of time to sort of, you know, make the baby food, it was very important to me. But by the time I had Amos, Amos looked at what Griffin was having and was like, I will not be eating this puree. And Felix was the same way. Just like, you will not feed me this mush when I can see y'all eating pizza. Like, it's just not happening. Move on. Yeah. I mean, with both of my girls, I have just gone straight to table food because I just think it's disgusting and weird. So baby food, no nuance. Well, agreed. And that is not a slam on anybody who buys it. Like I understand it's convenient. Some there are days where Yeah, I always have a like listen, we gotta ha- you gotta have a pouch or two in your in your like toolbox. Like that just has to be a thing just so when you're out and you're like, Ugh, we're all eating trail mix here. <laughs> See that's pouch. for me that's a banana. I just can't even go to the pouch. Oh, that is it's true. Just a banana. That is true. Okay, so the other thing that is perhaps more relatable to people who do not have tiny children around them <laughs> I have no nuance about false appreciation. And the way this manifests the most for me is using THX to say thanks in any kind of communication. <laughs> I oh, hate THX so much. I do. I just feel like if you can't even like use the whole word, you, you, you are not grateful. So don't pretend that you are. I would much rather have no thank you whatsoever than one that someone does not mean. So I've THX never, on my list. Never thought about THX in my life. 
Yeah, I think about it pretty much all day, every day, and I despise it. (laughs) Okay, things I lose nuance about. Harry Potter. I think we've established this. If you have not read the books, or if you say things like, oh, I love them, I've seen all the movies. Nope, we're done. We're done here. Nope, mm -mm, that's not a thing. You're not a Harry, and I've indoctrinated my child fully. He understands that people who have seen the movies but not read the books are not fans. I'm not nuanced about it. Um, I love them. I think they're the best things basically ever created and jk rowling is um a saint and an angel and the best among us so no nuance about harry potter zero there's it's led some to some strife in my marriage with regards to the my husband really does love harry potter but he's also a star wars fan obviously he was born in 1979 and i mean star wars is a fine i understand what's historically important but i do not think it is storytelling on the level of harry potter and we probably just lost some listeners i apologize that that um, is that is throwing the gauntlet down. Right it is. There. <laughs> it is. I'm strong. I feel strongly about it. I feel strongly about it. Um, I also have some strong thoughts. I think we've talked about this before. About we 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 have we talked about the chocolate. I feel strongly about chocolate. Not mixing chocolate with other things. I also have some strong thoughts about um, pizza toppings. And then I don't like. Well, it's really I guess my strong thoughts are about chicken. I don't like chicken on pizza. And I don't like chicken for breakfast. I don't feel like these are appropriate choices. There's other good choices. We don't need to put chicken on pizza or eat it for breakfast i mean not like eggs obviously but you know chicken no opposed i'm telling you i could go on for days i have lots of i have lots of opinions on things well where are you <laughs> on like chicken and waffles for brunch because i, feel I mean like that's important yeah i have no listen i mean i've eaten at the is it roscoe's in la like yeah delicious i get that brunch we can bend the rules a bit i'm, I'm willing to accept a small amount of gray area for that but like really like Chick-fil-A for breakfast, I don't I don't want to be a part of that. I just don't. And I love Chick-fil-A, but I just don't want to be a part of the like the chicken mini biscuits. Even though I acknowledge they taste good, I just chicken for breakfast weirds me out. I don't I don't want to be a part of that. Um and there was some oh, there was another one I, I was thinking about, but I couldn't I don't have a lot of nuance about um fear. The other thing if somebody was talking about the other day that I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore with the the sort of the fear mongering about cell phones and we're all on our cell phones too much we're gonna learn we're gonna forget how to talk to each other and we're all neglecting our children um i love my cell phone i'm sort of unapologetic about it i think it's just the the way our communication's changing and i don't do so i don't do guilt about cell phone that's something i don't have a lot of nuance about it's just not it's not a thing i engage in about guilt about my technology usage i try not to do guilt generally like i don't have a lot of nuance about this like people talk to me about mom guilt and stuff and i always think i choose not to feel that yeah, because, that was awesome. That's actually something you exact said to me. I said, "Oh, I think I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get somebody to watch Felix so I can do some more campaign stuff." And I just feel bad, you know. I'm gonna have less time with Felix. He's just one once. And she, you were like, "Nope, I don't do that." It was awesome. No, I don't. I don't do that. What's the point of that? I would never get out of bed if I let myself indulge in all that guilt. Um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I have I have guilt for days, and I just choose Word. not to feel it. Just choose not to. I agree. On board. Thanks I'm sure for joining us. <laughs> yeah, I feel, like, I feel like we could do this little, this this non-nuanced things that aren't political pretty often. I could do this like every two, three weeks or so. Well, I hope that you guys um, can keep it nuanced in your political discussions where it is important. But, you know, feel free on, on the baby food and the Harry Potter issues to just go at it full force. <laughs> 
So we'd love to hear from you on Facebook and Twitter. We're on Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and Twitter, Pantsuit Politic, no S. Um, also, Bryn, one of our amazing listeners, set up a Slack channel. And I have to tell you how old it makes me feel, but it is really a great forum for more in-depth discussion. So if you would like to join us on Slack, you can just send either of us your email address and we'll send you an invitation. We'll be back on Friday with the briefcase, but until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.